Hi, just checking in, seeing how you're doing today, and seeing if you might want to take a little break, step away from the noise of the world for just a moment, and connect back with you. If so, let's take a deep breath in, and breathe out, and let it all settle. I'm your host, Michael Gallion, and this is Letting It Settle. Hi, it's Michael, and I have some exciting news for you. We are introducing Letting It Settle Plus, the ultimate listening experience for those looking to find their calm and navigate the noise of life. As a subscriber, experience an abundance of the exclusive content that you know and love. For those looking to immerse themselves into the tranquility, the subscription includes immersive mini and 30-minute guided meditations, perfect for those on the go or others needing a bit more time to let it all settle. You'll also discover a plethora of bonus episodes with topics ranging from practicing gratitude, cultivating self-love, as well as Ask Me Anything specials, where I answer your questions and topic requests. And all of this is available for you now to elevate your listening experience. Actionable takeaways, guided meditations, and mindfulness exercises await. So, don't miss out. Subscribe to Letting It Settle Plus today to join the community. Available on all platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. You'll find what you came for here, and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I recently had the chance to sit down with Amy Morin. In her own words, Amy is a psychotherapist turned accidental author, and also the host of the popular podcast Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin. Her books have landed on the Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestseller lists and are all themed around 13 things that mentally strong people don't do, which is the title of her first book. From there, she went on to create a series of other books, 13 Things That Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do, Strong Women Don't Do, Strong Kids Do, and then her latest book, 13 Things That Mentally Strong Couples Don't Do which is available in stores right now. In 2015, she gave one of the most popular TEDx talks of all time, The Secret of Becoming Mentally Strong, and it's been viewed more than 22 million times. Amy also happens to live in a very interesting part of the world, and I'll let her tell you all about that during our conversation. Our conversation took us to many places, but it was great to connect with her on her views on emotional regulation, resilience, and the difference between mental health and mental strength. So, before we begin, let's take another deep breath in, breathe out, let it all settle, and enjoy the conversation. Amy, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on the show today. I'm excited to have the Letting It Settle listeners get to hear a little bit about your story, what you're up to in the world. Um, One of the things that I really was drawn to about you was 
the focus on mental strength, not just mental health. And I think that's such an important thing. And um, I'm excited to have you kind of explain that in detail and talk about what you're up to. But why don't you give us a little background on what brought you to where you are today? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. My career started as a therapist, and I thought I was going to spend it talking to people in my office in Maine. Um, and I was happy to do that. But then went through a series of losses in my own life. My mom passed away when I was 23. When I was 26, my husband passed away. And it really launched my own journey on knowing what does it look like to be mentally strong and how do you go through hardship? And I started studying mental strength with a new, I guess, interest in it, not just for how do I teach it, but also how do I apply it to my own life? And on one of the darkest days of my life, I had written an article. Well, it started out as a letter to myself, really. It was called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. I found it helpful. And then I thought maybe it would help somebody else. So I published it on the internet and 50 million people read the letter. And one of those people happened to be a literary agent who said, you should write a book. But there was really no context for the letter. It was kind of just the list of 13 things. And so nobody knew that I had written it because I struggled with it. They all thought, oh, you're a therapist and you mastered it. And as the list went viral, I was getting phone calls from people all over the world. It was like CNN in Mexico and MTV in Finland. And everybody wanted to talk about this therapist who had learned all of these things. But it really wasn't until later on that I told the backstory. Like, well, there's more to this story. I didn't write these things just because I, I knew it through my work as a therapist. I wrote this because I was struggling. And I actually do all of the things on the list. But it's something that I'm working on. That's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing how... So many people who who come on on the show and talk to me, their their journey starts with one of the most devastating days of their life, and I think it's that that strength and resilience to be able to take that moment, and to it, it's not like it's easy. It's not like you just woke up and were like, oh, I want to do this. Right. You did that work. You put in the hard work to to learn those things. And I think, as you said, it's just because you're teaching something doesn't mean that you're always embodying it. That's it exactly, and. You know, and in that moment, it wasn't like on one of the worst days, I thought, look, let's let's find some meaning and purpose in all of this. <laughs> Never imagined that it would happen, that that would go viral. In fact, if I had known 50 million people were going to read it, I probably wouldn't have written it because I thought, you know, as a therapist, I don't share my story. I had no desire to do it, but glad that I did. And since then, of course, like the great things that have happened to me, I now have six books and I get to do cool stuff like be on your podcast certainly doesn't make up for all the bad things I went through, but it also does help to say, okay, even though I went through all of these bad things and it was difficult and it was really hard, what can I do with that pain that at least makes it say, you know, how can I use it in a way that would be helpful to, if not myself, somebody else too? Totally. Yeah. I think it's that the difference between being grateful for the, the difficult things that happen into our life it's not, we're never truly going to be grateful for them. It's not like you're going to wake up and be like, oh, th thank God my husband died. You know, it's, it's devastating and horrible and should not have happened. But you can be grateful for the resilience that you had in the face of that. And I think it shows a lot of strength that you had. And to be able to turn that into all these beautiful educational moments for people is such a gift that you get to give. Thank you. And I'm, I'm glad that I do. And it's one of those things I think people will sometimes be like, oh, that's that's wonderful that you that you turned it into purpose. But again, I didn't mean to because I think it's harmful sometimes that we'll say to somebody like, oh, you know, all things happen for a reason. 
And when somebody's going through incredible pain, that's not necessarily helpful for them to hear in that moment. Down the road, they may find that, yeah, perhaps they found something good in a really dark day in their life. But we just want them to be able to do that on their own terms and to come to that conclusion themselves. Yeah, totally. What do you think what do you think is the appropriate response to people who are struggling and going through things who haven't quite gotten to the other side of it? Uh, you know, it's interesting because I'll even say to people sometimes, you know, I'm a therapist and I'm an author. So you'd think I and I've been through my own story. So you'd think I'd have the words to say when you're going through a really tough time, but I don't always know. And something I learned, there's a a book that's written by Kelsey Crow, and it's called it's like what to say when you don't know what to say. One of those deals, I forget the exact title, but she wrote a book about basically what do you say to people when you don't know? So if somebody says that they were just diagnosed with this devastating illness, sometimes we want to look on the bright side, like, well, at least it's not X, Y, or Z, or I had a cousin that went through that too. And those things usually aren't helpful. Her advice was to just say to somebody, how are you doing now? And when you say now, it means like, I really want to know, not just how are you doing, like you're passing them on the street, like, hey, how are you? But when you say, how are you doing now? We open up the door for them to say, yeah, I'm grateful it's not worse and I'm kind of doing okay. Or maybe they say, I'm really struggling. I'm kind of scared. And it also means they don't have to talk about it. Somebody might say, uh, you know, I don't really have anything to say right now. Or they might say, I'm, I'm doing all right. Thanks for asking and change the subject. That's a great way to just open the door and see if somebody wants to talk about it more. Yeah. As a as a mindfulness instructor, I really appreciate that because it's bringing it into the present moment, which I think in those times, so often it's focused on, well, what are you going to do? What's next for you? How, how are you going to move through this? Or let's discuss what happened and just letting them know that right now, let's talk about like, where are you here right now? Oh, and now I remember the title of her book. It's called There Is No Good Card for This. Because how Ooh. accurate is that when yep. you want to buy a card and give it to somebody? <laughs> and again, you aren't sure whether to say like, you know, I'm grateful things aren't worse or sorry things are so bad or there just are no words. Sometimes people come into some really difficult circumstances. So I think sometimes, yeah, there isn't a good card for this. I love that. I will have to check that out. I like that. Who's the author again? Kelsey Crow. Love it. Good shout out to Kelsey here. Yes. <laughs> Letting It Settle with Michael Gallion is sponsored by BetterHelp. Relationships are hard, and whether it's with a partner or a friend or a parent, they take work, and they can often bring up emotions that we don't quite know how to deal with yet. In my own life, I've had relationships that didn't work out because instead of voicing concerns and working through them, we were both avoiding conflict and pretending that things were okay until inevitably things blew up and we both walked away hurt. A common misconception about relationships is that they have to be easy to be right. But sometimes the best ones happen when both people put in the work to make them great. Learning how to voice concerns and navigate conflict has been something that I've worked on for years, and a therapy was a perfect place to practice those tough conversations and get to the bottom of what I really needed in my relationship. If you're thinking about therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and meet the needs of your busy schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and be matched with a licensed therapist, 
and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit betterhelp.com settle to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash settle. So I know that you just just released or are releasing a new book. What is that? Just on? released 13 things mentally strong couples don't do hit the shelves December 26. Amazing. What is what's the biggest takeaway from the book? I think the biggest takeaway is that relationships change over time. And that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But as long as we're working on talking and communicating about those changes, uh, we can grow together. And when we work together on attacking problems instead of attacking each other, like relationships uh, become so much better. And they do take work, but you can work as a team to say, how are we going to tackle life's challenges? Because there's going to be challenges down the road. Yeah. I think that is something that most people definitely need. It is one of the biggest things that I find people come to me is just that interpersonal conflict and figuring out how to navigate through that, either in a relationship or in a you know work setting or friendships or whatever. But specifically in relationships, that conflict, what do you think is something that people can do? I know that the book is what they don't do, but what are things that they can do? Uh, so it would really come down to managing your own emotions. We know that when we are in conflict, we get upset. When we're angry, we are tempted to say things we don't mean, or we behave in a way that might be outside of our usual behavior. Same with anxiety. Anxiety can cause us to do some fairly outrageous things, whether it's repeatedly texting somebody or saying things and then quickly saying, wait, I didn't mean that, or apologizing for something that maybe you don't even think you need to apologize for, but you're trying to make peace. So I think it really boils down to then knowing yourself and knowing, okay, I'm starting to get a little dysregulated. How do I manage this emotion right now, given what's happening in front of me? And then having tools for those things. I'm going to take a break, but I'm not just going to walk away from the conversation and abandon you. I just want you to know I'm taking a 10-minute break to cool down, and then I'll be back and we can revisit this conversation. Or talking about this subject causes me a lot of anxiety, so let's strategize for how we can do that. Maybe we only talk about it for 10 minutes at a time, or maybe we schedule the meeting so that I'm not just talking about finances on a random Tuesday at noon when I'm trying to work. And when we have those skills and those tools and we can communicate that to our partner, like this is what I need in order to be a, a productive person who can have an effective conversation, things get a lot better. And suddenly the problems we have uh, feel like they are solvable. And then we can say, let's tackle this together. And we're open to hearing what the other person's ideas are. And we can problem solve as a team. Yeah. And I love that you brought up the the emotional regulation necessity for these conversations. Because people so often go in so heated. And when you're not regulated, it is it can be a scary place to be. Because you're really in that fight or flight. You are going for the jugular there. Right. And our partners have that ability. Like somebody said... Uh, to me once if if i wanted you to if i offered you a million dollars to have a knockdown drag out fight with your partner today i'm sure you could do it because you know what buttons to push right <laughs> and the, and that's so true that when we are in a romantic relationship with somebody 
we know what buttons to push if we want to get into a heated dispute. But we also know there are things we can do to help them manage their behavior. And while it's up to us to manage ourselves and regulate our own emotions, there are things we can do for each other. When we communicate, hey, when we work together on this problem, when you do this, this is helpful to me. When I do that, it's perhaps not helpful to you. How do we do this together? Oh, things become so much easier. Yeah, it's interesting. The Sometimes when you have that space of safety, where you know there's that that love that is going to continue, you can do some pretty nasty things that you would never do if there were the stakes that that person would leave you. That's the thing. And I think that's that's why it's so important to remember that we have that responsibility to each other. Like, okay, this is a problem. And we're committed, though. We're committed enough to say it's worth working through together. And when you're first in a romantic relationship, you have all of those warm, fuzzy feelings. And we want to work through problems. When couples have been together for 15 or 20 years, some of those feelings have shifted and it just maybe it just doesn't feel like it's worth fighting for or that just doesn't feel like it's worth working through. And so people then uh, sometimes end up growing apart rather than growing together. Yeah. In terms of the finding your way back when you recognize that you're in a dysregulated state, what are some ways that if you were to work with clients or work on your own that you would use to get you back to a regulated space? So something I'll do with my clients sometimes is I'll say, look, what are the, if you came home from work tomorrow and you're in a really good mood, what would you do? And we create a list and that's your mood booster list. Somebody might say, oh, when, I'm, when I've had a good day, I listen to music. Maybe I call a friend and talk about some something happy or I go for a walk or I spend some time in my garden. And those are the wonderful things on your list that can boost your mood. So then we'll say, well, when you're struggling, take that list. Maybe it's 10 things and we tape it on the refrigerator. When you're struggling, you're having a bad day, you come home from work and and your mood isn't so good, pick something off of that list and do it. You're not going to feel like doing it when you're in a bad mood, but it could give you almost an instant boost in how you feel most of the time. So if somebody's kind of sad, but you listen to happy music, that might shift your mood so that you feel a little bit happier. And the goal doesn't have to be to be happy all the time, but it can be knowing that you have some control over your emotional state when it's not serving you well. So then for people who know, gee, whenever I get in a heated argument with my partner, my anxiety skyrockets, it might be helpful for them to have a list of 10 things that help calm you down. And it might be different for everybody, but it could be the music you listen to, the the sense that you have. Sometimes people will say, I put lavender lotion on my hands and it calms me down. Or somebody else might say, I like to run really fast when I'm upset because it helps me feel a little bit better. Uh, some people meditate. Some people take out a book to read for a few minutes. Somebody might say, I call my grandmother and she instantly helps me feel better. But it's always good to know, like I have a toolbox of tools I can use, things I can reach for. Uh, somebody who says I get angry, they might just need to take a walk around the block or take a break for a few minutes or a few deep breaths can go a long way to just calming down their nervous system too. I like to work with the clients and build their their calm kit is what I call it. It's just exactly that. It's that things you can reach to that you know historically have brought you calm and stillness. But I always warn that it's it's not bypassing the emotion because it's important to be able to feel into that because those are indicators that something needs to be addressed. How do you how do you think people handle the the balance between not bypassing an emotion and letting it be there, but also 
allowing for themselves to experience a different emotion. So sometimes we'll talk about, is your emotion a friend or an enemy right now? For people to know that emotions aren't either good or bad, that any emotion has the ability to help you sometimes, but it can hurt you at other times. So if your child gets bullied at school, your anger might give you the courage to call the teacher and say, we need to work on this. But when you're angry at your partner, that same angry feeling might cause you to say really mean things and hurt your partner's feelings. Or when you're excited about something, somebody comes to you with a get rich quick scheme and you're so excited that you think you're gonna get rich, you might forget the fact that it's probably not gonna work out. And that's why really smart people sometimes take risks that they shouldn't, because in that moment, that emotion was not their friend, it was their enemy. But excitement feels really good when you're about to go on vacation and you're looking forward to it. So sometimes it's about asking ourselves that, like what, what feeling do I feel right now? Just labeling it can take some of the intensity out of it. If I say I'm anxious when I feel anxiety, my anxiety goes down just a little bit and it can decrease the duration of it too so that I won't be anxious for quite so long. Then you say, all right, now that I've named this emotion, is it helpful or is it hurtful? If I'm so sad I can't get out of bed, it's my enemy right now, so what can I do about it? And that's when it comes into those uh, opportunities we have to change our behavior. Like I don't feel like getting out of bed, but maybe if I go walk around the block for a few minutes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start to feel a little less sad. And then when I feel better, I can think more clearly. There is really clear research that the more intense we feel an emotion, the less logical we are. And the best way to balance that out is sometimes you have to reduce the intensity of the emotion so that you can think a little bit more logically. So in the case where you feel so much anger that you can't think clearly, you're going to want to do something to calm down first so that you can have a conversation that's productive. Otherwise, your super intense anger will cause you to say things that you don't mean. In fact, if somebody gave you an IQ test when you're really angry, you'll score poorly on it compared to if you took it when you were calm because anger literally makes it that you can't think clearly and you get kind of stupid. That's why you don't want to go into an argument when you're really angry because you won't be able to say the things and get your point across in a way that's productive. So it's really just looking at looking at it and allowing for it to be there, but making the conscious decision on what's best for you. Right. And knowing that, yeah, I feel this emotion and I don't have to stay stuck in it. If it's not serving me well, I can take steps to manage it. Uh, but that there are times when it just makes sense to work through the feeling. Grief, for example, is really part of working through uh, our pain so that you can come out on the other side. You have to let yourself be sad. You have to let yourself deal with all of those emotions that come up. Or when we're sad about something, sometimes that helps us honor something that we've lost. And to know that our emotions are conflicting too, that if you change jobs, you might be really happy and excited about your new job, but you're also sad about the job and the coworkers you're leaving behind. So to know that, yeah, emotions are messy, they get complicated sometimes, but that we don't just have to let ourselves passively uh, feel whatever's coming our way. We can acknowledge it, we can accept it, but we can also say, how do I change my behavior to shift the way that I'm feeling too? Yeah. And that's such an interesting topic, the coexisting of emotions. I think you touched on grief. Grief is such a interesting place to be, especially when there are other emotions that are present and other situations that are there. I remember grieving my grandmother's loss and also having a huge career advancement at the same time and feeling so conflicted because there was joy and excitement. And I felt like I should be in this deep grief. That's the thing. Like I felt it too. Like if I were to laugh at, while I was grieving, then it's like stirs up guilt of I shouldn't be laughing at something. I shouldn't be having fun. 
and to know that all of those things are normal. And again, that's how life often is. It's a roller coaster. Things are rarely all wonderful or all horrible. So many things can coexist at the same time. And that's why it gets messy and it gets difficult to, to even name our emotions sometimes because you think, yeah, but I'm kind of tired today and I'm a little disappointed about something that happened yesterday, yet I'm super excited about something I am hoping will happen tomorrow. So to be able to put a label on a lot of those emotions is difficult. But when we do, and then we realize, yeah, I feel a lot of things for a lot of different reasons. It's like it almost gives us permission to say, I don't have to be all way, all one way or all another and helps our brains and our bodies make a little bit more sense of what's going on. Yeah. It's that, that impermanence of things as well and understanding that they're going to come and they're going to go and it doesn't necessarily, grief can leave you and then all of a sudden it comes back and you're going to experience it and it's not pushing it away when it does come and it's not holding on to it because you feel like that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. I'm glad you said that too, because a lot of times there is that pressure like, if you really love the person, then you would look like you were deeply grieving for three years yeah. <laughs> as opposed to just three months. Or, And so I think there are a lot of those things where somebody says, I have anxiety. So then they really expect themselves to be anxious about everything all the time. And, and you can almost talk yourself into that too. So I think it's just about knowing that emotions do come and go, that they will pass, nothing lasts forever. And to let yourself enjoy the good times when they're there. You don't have to just sit around and wait for the other shoe to drop, but then you can allow yourself to say, I feel really good today and I want to enjoy this emotion. And then on the down days to remind yourself, yeah, today isn't such a great day. I don't feel so good, but uh, it's not going to last forever either. Yeah. And not having to need to hold on to those good days either. That's something I struggled with was when I experienced something good, I got so anxious about it because I, I didn't want it to leave. And then I would start to fear that it would leave and... I never actually got to enjoy the happiness that was there. That's a really common thing. And for people not who are just going through grief, but sometimes people will say, you know, a lot of bad things happen to me. And when something good happens, I'm suspicious that something really bad is about to happen right afterward. Or they'll almost sabotage themselves because it's anxiety provoking. Like life isn't supposed to be good for me. So when things are going well, I feel like like it can't possibly stay this way for long. And I just don't want to just sit here and wait for the other shoe to drop. So I'm going to make something happen to to almost sabotage myself so that I'm sure that, all right, now the bad thing happened, I can breathe a sigh of relief. And, and it's interesting that a lot of people do do struggle to enjoy the good times. But we know too that it's like that balance of both good and bad is what often makes life better. Like we know that you will enjoy a cold glass of lemonade after you mowed the lawn, as opposed to if you had just been sitting on the couch all day. It's like the relief from pain feels really, really good. And when you have been on the bottom of the barrel and you feel like life has been in some really dark places, sometimes it also becomes easier to say, well, I'm going to enjoy the good while I have it because I have such a stark contrast to the how bad it felt to feel bad. I just want to let myself feel good for a few minutes too. Yeah, totally. Just feeling into it all allowing for yourself to experience everything that life is going to throw your way. Right. Life does throw strange curveballs and unexpected things. And, uh, it's a, you know, despite how many plans you have or what you think is going to happen, uh, there are a lot of unexpected things too. Yeah. What has been some of those unexpected things in your life? Um, I would say so many. So as I said before, I never planned to write a book 
And once I did write a book, I was a therapist who wrote a book and I thought that's kind of cool. Never imagined I would write a second book, but I got some unexpected press about a year and a half after my book came out that hit the bestseller lists. My book sold out and thought, oh, maybe I could write a second book. And then I wrote a third and a fourth and a fifth. And now we're on book number six. And I went from being a therapist in rural Maine. I had an adjoining office with my sister. And now I live on a sailboat in the Florida Keys and I get to do cool stuff. Like I get to be on your podcast and I do speaking engagements and, uh, get to write more and speak about mental strength on a completely different level. My books are in 40 something languages. So I get emails from people all over the world who are learning about mental strength. And I certainly never imagined those things would happen. Yeah. How do you allow for yourself to just take all of that in? You know, I have moments where I almost forget that this is like a weird life because it's kind of become normal to to live on a sailboat and, and do these cool things. But uh, I, a lot of my best friends in life I met in childhood. So I'll go back home and, and still spend time with my friends. And they'll ask, like, what have you been up to lately? And I'll say, oh, by the way, you know, I just got to do this really cool thing. And we have those conversations that uh, feel really at home to be talking to people who who sort of knew me uh, in all these different phases of my life, but also kind of reminds me of like how cool it is that I still get to do these things. Yeah. So you get to share that with the people who are in your life. And yeah, it's nice to have that like check back and say, you know, this is what this is what I'm doing and have that like excitement from them. Right. And they were the same friends that were there for me when my life was uh, in a really dark place. And so now they're all very happy for me that that life is good again. And uh, I've been there for them and their ups and downs and uh, all the challenges that they faced in life as well. I love that. So tell me about living on a boat. (laughs) (laughs) So it was either seven or eight years ago. They kind of blend together at this point. But um, my current husband and I had always said, like, let's live on a boat someday. And when he was four, his his bedroom was decorated in a sailboat theme. So that was his dream. It was not something I really knew much about. But we said, oh, that would be cool someday. But you know, if I really learned anything from my journey, it was like, don't put anything off until someday because you just don't know. Things aren't always promised. And if you want to do it, just do it. So we did it kind of on a whim. It was in November and we decided, yeah, let's do it. So by December, we loaded up. We had a dog and a cat at the time and a laptop and whatever we could fit at a Fiat. I drove a Fiat back then and um, drove from Maine to Florida, uh, bought a boat and started living on it, thinking it would probably only be a six month adventure, but I kind of liked it. So here we are all these years later. And, um, you know, I love the weather. I love the ability to go snorkeling and there's manatees and dolphins that go by and we get to do all sorts of cool stuff. I've learned a lot more about boats than I ever thought that I would, but I still have a long way to go to really know much about <laughs> sailing and and being on the ocean. But I just love being in nature and being around warm weather and the ability to to do things that I would have never had the ability to do when I grew up in rural Maine. It's amazing. At the beginning of the winter, I wasn't feeling my best. I was feeling sluggish and unfocused, and it was having a real impact on my work and relationships. When I started drinking AG1 every day, I could feel a real difference in my daily health. I had more energy throughout the day, I was more focused, and I was able to get things done, all of which helped to improve my spirits and get me through those dark months of winter. That one small change of adding AG1 into my daily routine 
helped get me back on track and feeling good. That's because AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement that supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition, continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. And not only did I replace my multivitamin with AG1, but I love that every scoop also includes magnesium and B vitamins for energy support and adaptogens to balance my body's stress levels. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com settle. That's drinkag1.com settle. Check it out. I love that, that thought of just, it's not, you're not promised tomorrow. So just jump into, you know, and there are logistical things. You can't do everything that you would always want to immediately, but just having those moments to take those chances. That's the thing. And knowing that things don't always work out, they don't always go as planned, but that's okay. And the cool thing about being an author now is if things don't go well, I at least have a good story, right? It makes really good material <laughs> for the next book when I can say, hey, I tried this and it didn't work. But I think I lived a lot of my life before all of these things happened to me, just worried about like, what if, what if something bad happened? And then if anything good came out of these things happening to me now, the little things, I certainly don't sweat the little things anymore, like embarrassing myself on a stage it's not the worst thing that could happen or doing something and it doesn't work out. It's okay. I'll figure out a plan. And it's really taught me that I was far more resilient than I thought I would have been. Yeah. So I'm going to ask a tough question. You don't have to answer if you don't want to, but we often talk about the success of people and the things that go well and the things that are amazing. And we don't often hear the, the tougher times, those times when we did make mistakes, those times when we did fail. Of course, they teach us lessons, but is there, is there any point in your life where you felt like it just wasn't, wasn't what you wanted it to be, or you made a few mistakes? Oh, yeah. And I'm glad you asked this question, because I think you're right. We often talk about the, the wonderful things. So I certainly make more money than, than I used to. And now uh, I have to figure out, like, how do you hire people to help you? I don't have, there's aren't enough uh hours in the day to do everything all the time. So I have a lot of opportunities that come my way and I have to say no to some and I get to say yes to others. But then I also have to figure out who do I partner with? And, and I don't always know. At least my inbox, as I'm sure yours is, is flooded with people that really want to help you do lots of cool stuff, whether it's um, create online courses or fix your newsletter or help you with this or that. And I'm not always the best at figuring out who to partner with and who not to, or how much money to invest in order to do X, Y, and Z. And so I once partnered with this company to create this online course. It turned out to be an absolute disaster. And I don't think I handled it very well. The first, you know, I went along with it a lot longer than I should have. There were some red flags that I should have said, no, this, this is not working. But I think I doubted myself. And in those early stages, I thought, oh, maybe this is just how things are done, or I don't know all of this, so perhaps this is... And I didn't ask enough questions. I certainly didn't um, step in and say, wait, I don't understand this, or this isn't working, or this was not meeting my expectation. 
So there are a million things I could have done differently. So I take a lot of responsibility for allowing it to go on way longer than it should have. But in the, in the end, it certainly didn't work out. And that's not the only time things like that have happened, that I take an opportunity, go along with it for a while. I think this, this is what the outcome is going to be. It's not. Sometimes you don't know until you try. But figuring out then, how do I manage my own business? How do I figure all of this out? It wasn't skills and tools I had. I didn't own any businesses when I was a therapist. I, I worked for other companies most of the time. So figuring out how do I own my own business? How do I run this? How do I hire people? How do I get people to help me? Has definitely been a work in progress over the last decade. Yeah. And I think especially as nice, kind people who want to, you know, trust people, it can be hard to to have to be firm about what it is that you want or, you know, feel like if, if I say this, I'm not going to come across as the nicest person in the world. And that's tough. But but it is one of those learning curves of who do you trust? One of the things that I was drawn to about what you're putting out there with your podcast and with your social media and with your books is that you are you're educating people because it's important. You clearly have a passion for this and you clearly want to put that out there. Oh, I'm glad you said that. My goal is to just make this information more accessible to people. And in remembering that at the end of the day, I feel good about what I put out there. If it reaches two people, then at least I've reached two people and it's not about necessarily getting a zillion clicks on everything. Yeah. I was talk about when I, um, like a year ago before the world changed for me, I was teaching meditation classes in New York and I could not get more than two people to show up. There was I like week after week, I would just be so embarrassed. A lot of times no one showed up. And I remember I had a friend, I called him and I was like, nobody showed up. I'm going to, I'm just going to quit. I'm going to do something else. And his advice was, you know, one, those people who are there are very lucky that they get to experience what you are teaching them. And two, this is great practice for when you have thousands or hundreds of thousands of eyes on you. This is a great place to just practice what you're doing, get as good as you can be. And it was when, you know, then I had, you know, millions of people then looking and watching and meditating with me. It was, I was ready for it. And so still to this day, it's like, sure, if one person wants to show up, that's great. I'm going to do the exact same thing that I would if 20 million were watching. And I love that. Sounds corny, but that's true. If I helped somebody, then okay, it was a, it was a day and time well spent. Yeah, totally. So talk to me a little bit about the difference between mental health and mental strength. So it makes more sense to us, I think, when we think about the difference between physical strength and physical health, because it's tangible. So if you were to go to the gym and lift weights, yeah, you know that that would make you physically stronger. But you wouldn't question the fact that it could also, it could prevent some disease, but it doesn't guarantee that you won't ever get high cholesterol or high blood pressure. And for some reason, though, when we talk about mental strength and mental health, some people say, well, you know, I'm not mentally strong because I have depression. Mental strength doesn't necessarily eliminate all risk factors for a mental health issue. It can certainly prevent a lot of them. It can help you live your best life. But even if you're living with anxiety or you're living with depression, you can still choose to do exercises that will make you mentally strong. Just like you could if you were, if you had high blood pressure, you could probably still go to the gym and lift weights. And so mental strength is all about the choices that we make every day. And it can be about saying, I'm going to choose to practice gratitude. 
and I'm going to choose to focus on what I can control. And even if my mental health isn't the best, it might improve it. But knowing that I don't have to wait until my anxiety goes away before I practice these exercises, I'm going to do them anyway. And the cool thing is, is that no matter how much mental strength you have, there's always room for improvement and there's always things that we can be working on. Yeah. What are some of your favorite mental strength exercises? So... I love the one we already talked to a little bit about, which is just naming your emotions. I think that's one of the most powerful things we could do. Sometimes it's just to help make sense of what's going on in our brain and our body. Another one is to schedule time to worry, which sounds absolutely ridiculous, but we know that people who worry a lot tend to worry almost all day, 24 seven. And there's research behind this. If you set aside 15 minutes a day to worry, then you can contain it to just a small period of time. And essentially, Whenever you catch yourself worrying outside of that 15 minutes, you say it's not time to worry yet. And then when your worry time comes around, maybe from 7 to 7.15 in the evening, you sit down at the kitchen table. You could write your worries down or you could just worry in your head for 15 minutes. Your time's up. Go do something else and tell yourself it's not time to worry again until 7 p.m. tomorrow. And I'll do this with therapy clients. In the first week, they'll be like, this isn't working because I'm constantly reminding myself not to worry. But by about the next week, usually two weeks in, sometimes they look like the weight of the world has literally been lifted off of their shoulders because they'll say, well, now I can contain it to just a very small period of time. And now I focus on what's going on in front of me instead of worrying about what if it doesn't turn out well or what happened yesterday. So that's one of my other favorite exercises is just schedule time to worry. And a third one would just be a gratitude journal before you go to bed. There's you know, gratitude is helpful any time of day. But if you write down three things you're grateful for before you go to sleep, it actually improves the quality of your sleep, but it also improves our relationships. People who practice gratitude live longer. They take better care of their health. They tend to be 15% happier. And it starts to train our brain to just look for more of the good in the world. Sometimes we go through life just pointing out all of the things that we didn't enjoy about the day. But when you start practicing gratitude, your brain starts to be like, oh, hey, yeah, that actually did go well. Or I'm, I'm grateful that this person held the door for me. And then we kind of pass that on. There's a ripple effect. When somebody's kind to you, we tend to want to turn around and be kind to other people, which not only makes their day better, but it helps us see that we can put those positive vibes in the world and then we feel, feel better too. Yeah. Yeah. I think gratitude gets such a, I don't know, maybe it's been put on too many, you know, memes or like bumper stickers about like gratitude, but it really is a really powerful tool. I do a lot of med meditation work for um, corporations. And when I'm working with them, I'll often bring up gratitude for them. And what I say is, I want you to think of the most challenging time of your day, the most challenging meeting that's coming up or that you had. And where is the gratitude in there? And finding in those challenging times, there are still things that you can be grateful for. And it just starts to open up their eyes to, oh yeah, there are things throughout the day. Because we get so focused on the negative and the, and the bad that just bringing light to that can be really powerful. I love that. I think that's so important. And I think sometimes people feel guilty that if they're struggling with something, that it means they aren't grateful. So people will come into my therapy office and say, you know, I'm battling depression, but my life is really good. I have a lot of good things going on and I should be more grateful. And then they almost feel guilty. But the truth is you could be still struggling with something and practice gratitude at the same time. They can coexist. Just because you're practicing gratitude doesn't mean you won't ever be sad or that you won't ever uh, experience anxiety. Those things can still happen. 
but it can definitely make those tough times in your life uh, better when you start saying, okay, even though this is really hard, I still have clean air to breathe and water to drink, or I still have something that I'm looking forward to later, or I'm grateful for this person who texted me. And when we start to think about those things, it, it really can help us say, and I have the skills and tools that I need to get through tough times. I think it really helps us find that inner strength that we forget about sometimes. Yeah. I love that. So we're getting near the end. And I always like to end with one question, which is if you could pass on one piece of advice or one teaching to everyone who's listening, what would that be? I would say don't believe everything that you think because your brain lies to you. It will underestimate you. It will exaggerate the likelihood that things aren't going to go well. It will blame you for things that maybe you didn't even do. And you can train your brain to see yourself differently when you when your brain says quit, if you keep going a little bit longer, you show your brain, now I'm capable and more competent. Or when you do something you think that you couldn't do, you can also sh just show your brain like, I can face my fears, it's okay. So I'd say just don't believe all those things that your brain tries to tell you all the time. I love that, yeah. Sometimes your brain is lying to you. Right. Just those automatic responses of negativity. Right. You don't need to listen to it. Nope. I love that. Well, thank you so much for for being here today. I am so excited that people get to hear some of your brilliance and get to uh, learn more about you. Tell us more. Where, where can people find you? What should they look for? All that stuff. And my website is Amy Morin, LCSW, as in Licensed Clinical Social Worker.com. And on there, you can find info about my books and my TEDx talk and about my podcast, which is called Mentally Stronger with Therapist Amy Morin which is a brilliant podcast. You should listen to it. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Good. Well, thank you for being here today. I'm so glad we got to have this time. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been fun. All right. We'll see you later. Bye. I hope that you are taking away as much as I did from that conversation. And we're really able to get the difference between mental health and mental strength and grasp onto some of the ways that you can help to strengthen that mental strength this week. If you're interested in learning more about Amy, you can find her at her website, which is amymorinlcsw.com, or on Instagram, amymorinauthor. And also make sure to go check out her podcast, Mentally Stronger, with therapist Amy Morin. Thank you for tuning in today. As you go out into the week, make sure to take good care of yourself. We'll end with a deep breath in, and breathe out and let it all settle. Go take care of yourself and I will see you next week. Oh, and it's always helpful if you want to rate, review, and subscribe to Letting It Settle with Michael Gallion wherever you get your podcast. And go ahead and follow me and the show on TikTok at CoachMichael1 and Instagram, Michael.Gallion. And also, just a reminder that I'm a huge proponent of taking charge of your mental health. And that means seeking advice from professional therapists, counselors, psychologists, physicians, and other qualified professionals. My teachings are meant to help you find a space of calm amidst the storm, but if you're experiencing ongoing mental health challenges, I want you to make sure that you seek help from a licensed professional. And remember that nothing that's said within this podcast should be seen as a substitute for their advice.
Letting It Settle with Michael Gallion is executive produced by Michael Gallion, Steve Wilson, David Henning, and Shen Yin Hu. Hosted by Michael Gallion. Original music and composition by Darren Johnson. Edited by Sarah Ma. Letting It Settle with Michael Gallion is a Q-Code production. Hey, this is Eric Malinsky, host of the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Each episode, I explore different sci-fi fantasy genres, talking with filmmakers, novelists, game designers, cosplayers, comic book artists, and anyone who works in the field of make-believe. I also look at the fan experience, asking, why do we suspend our disbelief? You can subscribe to Imaginary Worlds wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Whether you're in a relationship, single, or recently heartbroken, you could be navigating some tough stuff. And it really can be challenging to do this on your own. We all need help when it comes to our relationships, very specifically, our love lives. I'm Jillian, and each week on my podcast, Jillian on Love, I share skills on how to strengthen our relationships, how to build a stronger sense of self, and how to heal heartbreak and choose better partners. Learn how to start making change today and search for Jillian on Love wherever you're listening now.